This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with the brave and devoted Patriot pilot, Heather Penny. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance business coach. Where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you are born to be. Thanks so much for spending some time with me today. In this episode, my dear friend and real-life superhero, Heather Penny, a U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot who was called into action on September 11, 2001 to defend the capital region from further attack, shares her life and the details of what was expected of her on that horrific day, giving us an inside glimpse into the mindset and heart set of a fearless warrior willing to sacrifice herself so that others may live. You are a role model for everyone I've ever met. And uh, your, your ability to connect is so incredible. So let's just get right to the story. So the first P is passion. Mm-hmm. When you're called upon in an extraordinary circumstance, talk to us about what really drives us to perform to exceed expectations and perform under pressure. And as you answer that question, take us back to exactly what was happening as a 25-year-old lieutenant in the guard on that beautiful, clear Tuesday morning on September 11, 2001. Give us, give us that, that, that whole, paint the picture and give us that whole scenario that unraveled and unfolded for you that morning. Well, you know, I mean, you, you talk about passion and, and flying the S-16 was my passion. It was my, my why. And for people to discover your passion, I mean, it really requires a curiosity, a willingness to, to try new things, to see, you know, where, what, what, what creates that fire inside of you. And I had been fortunate enough that, as you mentioned, my father was an Air Force fighter pilot. And so that, that curiosity, that little spark had been, that, that, that had caught fire uh, early on in my life. So I knew that, that I really wanted to be a fighter pilot and that, there was a greater purpose behind that. And that really is what created a, a huge, just a devotion for me. And as I applied myself through pilot training, I loved the challenge. I loved that it was hard. I loved that there was a community, a belonging, a brotherhood where we, we helped each other out with that. But just the, the sheer application of learning my trade and and meeting the challenge and honing my skills brought me such joy and satisfaction internally. But more than that, it was it was knowing that that was in service to others. That that as I got better at my craft, that would be in service to our nation. But as a young fighter pilot, I was just you know on fire for this. So imagine back, you know, in, in 2001, I'm 25 years old. We've just gotten back from a deployment to Red Flag. Our squadron is virtually empty because, uh, you know, everyone's taking leave to be with their family. And we were, uh, you know, we're a National Guard squadron. So the part-timers were off uh, back to their real jobs, right? So there's just a skeleton crew. And instead of going flying, and it was a perfect flying day, it was just 
just a crystalline blue sky, not a cloud, light winds out of the southwest, barely five knots. It was spectacular. And I was stuck in a scheduling meeting. <laughs> yes, that's right. Doing doing the the administrivia, you know, the uh, the the queef of running the running the fighter squadron. Not that I was running it, but um, uh, but but they're supporting uh, my director of operations, Mark Sassaville. We had our weapons officer, um, Raisin Kane, um, and just going over just the the basics and the the motherhood of running the fighter squadron as we got back to our regular pace. So that's what that morning looked like to me. So, you know, for just like everyone else who woke up that day, it began completely normal, totally ordinary, nothing out of the usual. So you're just kicking back, having your cup of coffee, shooting the bowl, doing the administrative work, the television sets on and what happens? Well, we were in our meeting and so the uh, knot came at the door and this enlisted troop just barges in on the meeting, which is pretty unusual. And he says, someone just flew into the World Trade Center. And we looked out the window and thought, how does that happen? Because D.C. and New York, we typically share the, some, a similar weather pattern. So we expected it to be just bright blue in New York as well. And we made a couple, you know, morbid jokes because in our trade, having a somewhat dark sense of humor, ironic sense of humor is helpful. And just assumed that it was a little airplane, maybe a, a tourist airplane going down the Hudson, uh, bumped into a building, and it, it really wasn't that big of a deal. And so we didn't have any additional information. We made assumption that it, it wasn't that bad and just went back to our meeting. It wasn't until you know, the second aircraft hit the second trade center. And Chunks came back in. He didn't even knock this time. And he said, another plane flew into the other tower, and it was on purpose. And that was when we knew the world had shifted. We got up. We went to our bar where the television was, and we saw what everyone else saw that morning, those images. And we knew that we had to get airborne. We had to protect the Capitol. Because that's your job in the D.C. area at at, at, at at the Joint Base. Obviously, I've been there many times. <laughs> I know the proximity. And so that really is your job to protect the Washington, D.C. airspace as the Air National Guard, correct? No, it wasn't. Not at the time. Oh, wow. It is, yeah, it is. It is today. We have a there's a very robust uh, alert squadron there. There are our jets um, on station ready to go. There's guys in the alert shack ready to run out and take off at a moment's notice. There's layered defenses. It's not just the jets. There's a number of layered defenses and rules um, and trigger points and so forth. But in September of 2001, uh, we lived in, in a, uh, a world after the Cold War had ended. If you recall, the world was now flat. It was post-history. Um, it, it was unipolar. We were the only great power um, in the world. And our job was actually, we, we were preparing to go do Northern Watch and Southern Watch, which was basically just uh, sort of being a peacekeeper in the sky over, the, uh, over Iraq. Uh, as yeah. 
part of the con part of the consequences after uh, September of nineteen or after uh, um, Desert Storm of ninety one. So that was actually wow. our job. Um, so so as we sat there and we and we stood there, we knew that we needed to get airborne. We also realized we had absolutely no armament on the jets. Because we were preparing to go uh, do Northern Watch and Southern Watch, um, we would we had practice munitions, right? We had captive air training missiles, so that it's it's basically just a, a, a tube with electronics in it. There's no there's no rocket motor. There's no explosives. Um, we don't carry around live bombs. We don't carry around live missiles. Uh, we had nothing on the jets that would have prepared us to protect our airspace, our nation's capital in the way that, that, that you would have expected. All that we had was 105 rounds of, again, training bullets, so not high explosive incendiary rounds, but lead nose, basically very a very big BB gun. 105 uh, rounds. Wow. <laughs> yeah, 105 rounds of lead nose <laughs> training bullets. And that's all we had on the jets. Okay, so you're standing there with your with your commander. There's two of you. Are, are there six jets airborne? Are there ten air, jets airborne? Or is it just you and and your man? Well, so we had sent a three ship uh, down to um, go do their basic surface attacks. Some of the training that we were doing to prepare for our upcoming deployment. Um, they were down in North Carolina off of Cape Hatteras. So that was uh, Lou Shooter Campbell, Eric Puck Hagenson, and Billy Hutchison. There were probably about five or six of us total in the squadron, maybe five of us pilots. Mark Sassville was the director of operations, uh, and, but, but all of our jets were sitting on the ramp and even the three ship, a bully flight, they had just practice uh, munitions as well. They didn't have any real weapons, real bombs. And also, they were still living in that pre-9-11 world because they had taken off before the towers were hit. They had not seen the, the images. But the biggest problem was that because it was not our job at that time in that era to, to protect the nation's capital, and we were the National Guard of the of Washington D.C., the District of Columbia. We didn't have a governor. We our chain of command actually runs all the way to the president, and as you can imagine, he was pretty busy at the time. So <laughs> there was no organizational structure that could give us the authorization to immediately launch, and that was our biggest problem. We needed to get the authorization to take off. And then our next problem was we needed to get our jets armed with real munitions, real weapons. By the time we actually got the authorization to launch, it came from Vice President Cheney. And he, and he, and he thought, you know, I fly out of Andrews all, all the time. There Aren't there fighters on Andrews? Somebody get them airborne. But that authorization didn't even come until after the Pentagon was hit. So as you remember the timeline, the, the towers were hit, and then the Pentagon is hit. And so we didn't even have the authorization in time to protect the Pentagon. So thank goodness we finally 
finally got the call from the Secret Service, giving us authorization from the vice president to be able to launch. But by then, we we still were not able to get the jets loaded up with weapons. So when Mark oh. Saxville looked at me and said, lucky you're with me, we knew that we were on a one-way mission. We had to take off with no weapons on board. And the word came in that there was another hijacked jet heading towards Washington, D.C., every 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 intent and purpose to take out the White House or to take out the Capitol building, right? That's the intel you got? Yes, we had been um, talking with uh, the Potomac Approach, air traffic control. Um, our intelligence uh, uh, section had been working with the FAA trying to uh, identify all the aircraft that had been landed because by then the FAA was landing everybody and trying to identify what aircraft were or were not accounted for. So at the time we thought there were actually multiples, but what we, the intel that we had gotten from um, Potomac Air Traffic Control was that there was one airliner uh, inbound and they thought it was low and they thought it was coming down the river. So and that was the United Airlines jet. That was the intel that included that. We did not know that it was United. We did not know the flight number. We just knew that there was an airliner coming down um, inbound towards DC, coming down uh, the river, the Potomac, the Potomac River. And by then, uh, we had already brought some of the bullies. We'd already brought the bullies home, so we had called down to the practice range and told the the bully, the three ship of F-16s down there, to come home. So uh, Puck had already landed. Shooter and Billy were coming in, um, and they were actually landing as we were getting the authorization to launch. Shooter didn't have enough fuel to take off uh, again, but Billy did, uh, and so. Billy was actually the very first uh, jet airborne and to, to go look up over the river, but he didn't have a whole lot of gas. So he takes off and Sass and I are taking off just seconds after him. Billy takes off. He heads up the Potomac to about Great Falls, turns around, heads on down to see, you know, to, to where the Chesapeake um, or where, uh, where Potomac turns into the Chesapeake. And then he comes back and then lands. And because Sass and I had full tanks of gas, we took off and we were spread wide, searching low, and we headed out northwest over Pennsylvania. But we never found in search in, in search of this rogue jet that you you knew you had to take out. That was your assignment. How did how did how did you and your your do I call him commander? How did you and your your wingman communicate? to each other that it was a one-way kamikaze mission. How did that go down? Well, we had talked about it before Before we had gotten, the, while we were waiting for the authorization, uh, Sass, who was my flight lead, and he was the director of operations for the squadron. Uh, myself, uh, Raisin Kane, who was our weapons officer, and Igor Rasmussen, who was another uh, wingman, we had done a quick briefing to figure out how would we weaponeer this? What what could we do? What were the most vulnerable elements of an aircraft, of the airliner? And we realized that um, that we did that that what we had was not sufficient. We knew then that we would need to be ramming uh, the jet if we were not able to get missiles on board in time. 
So when Sass and I were grabbing our flight gear, Sass looks at me and he goes, I'll take the cockpit. And I knew I would take the tail. And when he said I would take the cockpit, what Sass was saying is that he was going to ram his jet into the cockpit to take out the terrorists. And I would wow. ram the tail to take the tail off of the uh, off of the airplane because without the tail, it, an airplane can't even glide. It becomes unbalanced and goes straight down. So we knew that if we were successful, we would not be coming back. Okay, so your passion for flying drove you to become a, an F-16 pilot. In a man's world, you excelled. You gained the respect and admiration of everyone with whom you worked, everyone with whom you flew. And all of a sudden, your passion for flying puts you in the most incredible, unprecedented predicament. And now you have to make the ultimate sacrifice, perhaps, to save our country, to save thousands of lives. You're willing to, to make the ultimate sacrifice and, and take your own life. So that brings us to the second P, Heather. How do you prepare for that? Who inspired you to prepare to live through integrity first, especially service before self and a commitment to excellence in all you do? What did you do specifically mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally to prepare yourself for this, this occasion? Because as you tell this story, you know, everyone with whom we, 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 capture on this podcast will have already experienced the so-called COVID crisis. And some of them had the, whoa, me, oh my gosh, you have no idea how hard this was, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you come into the scene as superwoman, as wonder woman, as wonder man, generalist hero you are. Teach us about what you went through to prepare yourself and I think this would be a powerful place for you to actually answer the question when asked why you were ready to fly a kamikaze mission. What, what, how did you answer? I, I've heard you say that in your speeches. Consolidate that powerful quote and then just kind of embellish your preparation, your mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional preparation to allow you to step up in this, in this amazing you know, challenge. Dan, there are things in this world that are more important than ourselves. And if I were to consolidate consolidate everything that you've just asked, it would be in that bit. There are things in this world that are more important than ourselves, than our personal safety, than, than our self-interests. And that's actually what I find so inspiring about that story. It's not that I'm a hero. I'm not a hero. <laughs> I, first of all, I mean, Sass and I, we, we, we didn't make it in time. The passengers on Flight 93 are the real heroes. They actually made the sacrifice, right? And, I mean, I was prepared because of a variety of things that throughout my life I had realized that service and and contributing to to the world making the world a better place i had listened to mission tapes from my father's uh, uh sorties in vietnam and 
I mean, that was part of what where I realized that there was a, a greater purpose, a greater a meaning behind flying fighters. It wasn't just the thrill and the adrenaline of flying, you know, this high G mock jet. It was about what I could do with that to serve our nation that mm. made me so passionate about it and that drove me to 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 practice my skills and to meet the challenge and stay committed even when even when I didn't get it right, even when I made mistakes, even when it was hard and even when it was boring. I was still passionate because it was purposeful. And I had raised my right hand and sworn an oath to my country, you know, to be prepared to give my life in its defense to protect our way of life. But those passengers on Flight 93, they were just coming home from a business trip or going to see grandma or heading out on vacation. They hadn't gone through that kind of preparation that I had where I had already long before that fateful day had made the decision that if necessary, I was prepared to give my life to protect our way of life in our nation's defense. So what's amazing to me is that these passengers knew that as, as Americans, they instinctively knew at their core that there are things more important than themselves and that they were unwilling to give in to the fear. Because that's part of it, right? Fear yeah. is... Fear is, is, is a signal. It, it's a useful signal. It tells us that there's danger to the environment, right? But in the end, fear is also a choice. Do you use the fear to assess the risk and then decide whether or not you're willing to continue to move forward towards that goal and therefore then look at those risks and take the steps to mitigate risks so that you can improve the probability of your achieving that goal. That's ultimately what risk management is about. Risk management isn't about saying, okay, here's a reason for me not to go fly. Here's a reason for me not to go after that goal. Fear is a signal to risk manage, to risk assess, risk manage, and figure out, okay, there's a danger signal. There's a risk. How, what actions can I take to mitigate that risk, minimize that risk, so I can optimize the probability of me achieving my goal and accomplishing my mission. When we give in to the fear, we, be, we, we choose to become victims. When we give in to the fear, we disempower ourselves. We give our power away. When we give in to fear, we can no longer take positive action. Fear is, is a choice, just like bravery is a choice. And bravery is oh. practice. It's not brave. It, someone isn't brave. Bravery isn't a character attribute. Bravery isn't something that people are born with. Bravery is a choice and it's a practice. And so rather than saying be brave, I would, I would rather say do brave, choose brave. Because it's something that we can all daily practice. It's a muscle. And the more we choose to face our fears and to choose to be brave despite that we become stronger and more courageous over time 
I love it. You know, I've spoken for all the commanders of the Air Force, all the four stars in their in their match comms around the world. And they always say, Dan, what can we do for you while you're on base? And I say, I want to see your office. And they say, why? And I say, you've been in the Air Force probably 35, 37 years, and you've had so many different moves. I want to know what still makes your wall. What <laughs> photograph is still there? What, what momento, what but coins, your challenge coins, what are there? And I go into to, to Baba Rand. He was a commander mm-hmm. of Global Strike Command. Yep. I spoke, you know, I was at Barksdale for a few days and spoke at his command. I go in his office. To your point, Heather, he has a framed quote by John Wayne that says, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Amen. And so that, that brings us to the third P, the pursuit of your passion. And a direct quote from one of your speeches, uh, when when you were asked why you were ready to fly this kamikaze mission, you already said, because there are things in this world that are more important than ourselves. And then you itemized, Heather, you said freedom, the Constitution of the United States, our way of life, mom, baseball, apple pie. These things are so much more important, and they are they're what make us uniquely American. And then here's, excuse me, here's the kicker that I want to to focus in on your, on your last uh, dissection of the P pursuit. You said we belong to something greater than ourselves as complex and diverse and discordant as it is. This thing, this idea called America binds us together in citizenship and community, brotherhood and sisterhood. So to the last P, my dear, dear friend, pursuit of your passion. Going through this COVID-19 so-called crisis, what do we Americans need to now do during this pause and purge to prepare ourselves for any consequential, consequential rapid change that might come our way in the future? Because you rose to the occasion because of your passion and your preparation, because of your mindset, those passengers on flight 93 rose to the occasion because they had to, it was, it was, you know, whatever, but teach us about what we need to do and why you have stayed motivated all these years to keep pursuing your passion of service before self and why all of us should do the same. You've already said it, Dan, because we all belong to this thing called America. And Mm. what we need to hold on to now and revision now is is how do we, when we emerge from, from from this particular moment, we must develop together as a community and as a nation, together, not as two different sides, not as left and right, but together we need to envision what what is this vision for a greater America? We can't go back to the way things were. And frankly, I think many of us wouldn't want to go back to the way things were. Or frankly, the way things are right now with as, as divided and vitriolic and as full of hate as things are now. We need to figure out how can we come together and heal our nation, bring all the sides together because we're in it together. We shouldn't be lobbying and lobbying, you know, rocks at each other. 
We need to figure out how do we heal our economy? How do we heal our communities? How do we heal our businesses? How do we heal our environments? How do we heal our families? And this isn't going to be easy. One of the things that concerns me is how much fear has been stoked over this virus. And I'm not at all advocating that we we be grossly negligent in terms of, of how we approach our health uh, and how we care for our vulnerable populations, but none of us get out of this life alive. Our lives, once you, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, there is risk inherent in everything that we do. And we've been so fortunate to create a nation where we can take our safety for granted. But the fact of the matter is life is not safe. If you play it safe, you never win. And so oh, that's powerful. Have, yeah, if we if you play it safe, we'll never win. And I'm concerned oh. that right now we are so risk averse that we are unwilling to accept and come to terms with the fact that there will be losses. But we have to go on anyways. I'm I'm so it, it, I I think about the greatest generation, right? And what's wonderful about the greatest generation of World War II is that they were totally ordinary Americans. There's actually nothing great about them. They were just Americans. And they were so fantastically courageous. So the 8th Air Force, flying B-17s and P-47s, they're flying out of England in the European theater, going over the English Channel to take the war to the heart of Nazi Germany. They only had, in the, in, the, in the first three and a half years of war, one in five of them would die. Wow. So wow. More, 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 of those, more of those airmen died than the entire Marine Corps across the entire globe for the, whole, for the whole war. I mean, the death rate and the casualty rate. And every day, you know, they, they'd get into their B-17s, their flying fortresses, and they would take off and fly in sub-zero temperatures again to accomplish their mission. And if you want to know fear, those men knew fear. They were watching. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't move. They had to stay in their formation because that was the integrity that they needed to do to protect the, the box, to, to protect their squadron and their group. And they couldn't maneuver defensively. Uh, and so they had to every day go out and fly through the flak they would get hit. They would get they would get attacked by the, the Messerschmitts. There the men, the crew on those planes would be dismembered, they'd be blown up. They they would see airplanes fall out of the sky. They'd deliver their bombs, they'd have to fight their way back home, and they'd have to get up the next day and do it again. And that those men knew fear. And they knew that there was a chance, there was a really good chance they weren't gonna be coming home. And they were watching their buddies die, and they did it anyways. And that's the spirit that we need to remember and that we need to reconnect with. That is our heritage. That is our legacy. And people, we will have losses. And that's not saying that their lives are not important or that they're not valuable. But our nation, our way of life, our communities, the things that we are building together what it means to be an American, the, the Constitution, the rights, 
everything that we have built together as a nation, we cannot lose that because we are so afraid of this virus. We need to reconnect with that greatest generation, that legacy, which is ours, that courage, that willingness to go forward, even though we know there will be losses. And do what wow. we can to bring our nation back and to make it better when we emerge from this. There you have it. According to Heather Penny, our guest, uh, any one of us can become a power player if we focus in on our prepare mentally and emotionally now before a crisis occurs, we'll be able to respond to rapid change. And then that drives us to pursue our passion because, you know, we're all going to die, as you said, and you can't take much with you except our memory that we made a difference, that we left a legacy. Okay, last question, my friend. I've asked this to every single one of my guests. We're basically running way short on time, but you're so famous for consolidating these powerful points. Professor Randy Pausch, he's famous for coining that speech title called The Last Lecture. Let me put you on the hot seat for just a, a minute. Heather, if you had one day to live, what's your consolidated message to the world? You you haven't talked about the unfair glass ceiling world in which you had to fight your way as a female fighter pilot. You didn't even bring that up, my dear. You basically said, I understand my purpose and I am going to do whatever it takes. So what's your message to the world as we wind down? Do brave, choose brave so that you can leave this world a better place. Because when we create that belonging and when we realize that there are things in this world that are more important than ourselves, that allows us to, to exist within our highest service. Wow. And because we just, uh, you know, we have a chance to celebrate Mother's Day, Father's Day, whatever the holiday may be, I think my listeners would be, would be in total awesome amazement of what an amazing mother you are teaching your beautiful children, exactly what you consolidated in this short podcast. So thank you for your example. Thank you for just being you. And uh, I, I cherish our friendship more than you'll ever know. So as oh, I always do, I- So mutual. I, Love I, and hugs to you, Dan. No, you're wonderful. And as I close with you on the air, so remember my friends, when you finally decide to be a power player, your power play begins in you. So until next time, as my guest- Heather Penny is so eloquently explained in her words and in her story. Quantify your takeaway and go make a power play. Not just when you're called to go airborne, but because you choose to be brave, as Heather just said. Thanks, my dear, dear friend, for being on the on the show, and I can't wait to connect offline and, uh, and that virtual hug for now. Thank you so much, Dan. Love to you Thank and you. to all of your listeners. Thank you so much. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.